0: it's our privilege and opportunity to partake of the Lord's table to uh, rehearse the gospel in a very tangible way, which should help us to think very deeply about the reality of the gospel, its implications that it claims that Jesus Christ, the God-man, came from heaven and that he died on the cross at Calvary for the remission of sins. The the, The bread is a symbolic reminder to us that his body was broken and crushed there at the cross of calvary the the wrath of god being poured out on him in our place those who by faith trust in christ and then the cup that we take is a symbol and it reminds us of the shed blood which we see clearly throughout the entirety of the old testament through the new without the shedding of blood there's no remission of sin and so christ was the lamb of god who took away the sins of the world He was the perfect spotless lamb of God without sin. And it was his blood that provides for us the free forgiveness of sins in his name. Isn't that good news? It's called the gospel. And so we rehearse that once a month at Jinx Bible Church. We desire for this not to become some ritual religious ceremony that we just walk through and we just do and we go through. it. We want you to purposefully think about Christ. Where are you in relationship with him? Have you named him as your Lord and your Savior? Have you called out to him? Have you cast yourselves completely on him and solely on him for the forgiveness of sins? That's what this is all about. It's about a relationship. It's a new covenant that got inaugurated there at the cross of Calvary in Christ. A new covenant, the new covenant from Jeremiah 33. And so as we partake of these elements today, listen... If you've not named Christ as your Lord and your Savior, and you're not recognizing that and as a reality in your life today, just allow the elements to pass by. There is no condemnation here. We want you to instead of just observe, making an observation of what believers do. And you may think, wow, that's interesting. Believers do this. And they do that in remembrance of something that happened 2,000 years ago. That's very interesting. And then I would challenge you to think deeply about the reasons for why we do this. If you're here this morning as a follower of Christ, you know you've got some unconfessed sin that needs to be taken care of before the partaking of these elements. Just do it now. Just while we're passing these elements out. Turn the eyes of your heart again to God and repent of sin and confess. Come before this, this table with clean hands and a pure heart as much as it depends on you. And the good news is that he's quick to forgive, isn't he? And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Only the adversary wants to keep making you think you're unworthy. Reject those thoughts. Take that thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Walk in full relationship with the Lord today. It's here for the taking. Amen? So I'm going to pray, and the elders, if you'll come, we're going to be passing out these elements. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you for this opportunity to rehearse the gospel this way in a very tangible way where we hold elements that symbolize these eternal truths that were written in the heavens before the foundations of the earth that Christ would die and his blood would be shed for the rescue mission of bringing people back into right relationship with the only true living God. (laughs) That That is amazingly good news. That's amazing grace. And so we have come this morning and right now and we are wanting to say thank you, thank you with our lips, we want to say thank you with our lives as, we, as the church gathered then scatters this week to live for you. We want, we want our lives to uh, have that aroma of Christ before us as we go about and have our, our, our living and our being before you. So today, Lord, be glorified through your body, the church, and draw our hearts closer to yourself as a result of today. In Christ's name we pray. was the very night that christ was to be betrayed that he had the bread with his disciples in the upper room and he broke it and he said this is my body which is for you it was symbolizing what was just about to happen with the breaking of his body at the cross the wrath of god being poured out on him so let's remember that he was in our place substitutionary atonement christ in our place let's take the bread remembering christ Father, we thank you that um, Christ willingly went to the cross for the joy he said that was set before him. He endured the shame knowing that there was a beautiful bride at the end. We are here to say thank you and that we remember. In Christ's name, amen. A few gentlemen will pass the cup. And while Christ was with his disciples, he also had a cup. He referred to it as a cup of the new covenant in his blood. He shed his blood on our behalf for the free forgiveness of sins. Hallelujah. Let's take the cup remembering Christ. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word with you, open with me this morning. We're continuing our study through the Gospel of Matthew. And we find ourselves this morning at chapter 3, uh, the first six verses of chapter 3, which introduces us to John the Baptist. And just for starters, listen to what Jesus said regarding John the Baptist in Matthew eleven eleven. He said, truly. I say to you among those born of women, there there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Jesus says here that John the Baptist was greater than the likes of Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. We could jump ahead to Moses, we could go to Elijah, we could go to David, or any other biblical figure that you might want to insert from the Old Testament or even a New Testament list. Of all people, Jesus says, there has not arisen one born of woman greater than John the Baptist. Yet, John the Baptist, at some undisclosed time in his life, moved out of his parents' house and went out and lived in the wilderness of Judea. His existence would have been likened to that of a hermit. He forsook all social life for what he knew to be God's calling on his life. And the one sure way... He knew of God's calling on his life from what it was from what his parents, uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth, would have told him. Listen to what an angel of the Lord told Zacharias while performing priestly service in the temple of God. He was in there to light the incense offering, while an angel of the Lord appeared to him and said this. Now, Remember, this is what John grew up hearing about God's calling on his life. You ready? But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and give and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. A conversion while yet in the mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. So as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord now just try to take a few steps in John's shoes try to imagine if you were John having the purpose statement of your life handed down to your parents by an end by an angel the angel of an angel of the Lord and I think you perhaps may realize at that point you have no options at least it wouldn't seem to be any options am I are you tracking with me Yeah, I mean, Zacharias questioned the angel as to the accuracy of his word, and he was stricken mute for the next ten months uh, for doing so. Can you imagine what the townsfolks must have been saying to John as he was growing up? There there he goes. That's the one. Elizabeth, too old to conceive, past childbearing age, likened unto Abram and Sarai. God says, you're going to have a son, she gets pregnant. Oh, and then the angel tells Joseph, remember, not Joseph, Zacharias. Remember Zacharias? He couldn't speak for 10 months. Why? Because he questioned what the angel of the Lord told him while he was serving in the temple. There he goes, kicking a soccer ball, running down the the, the byways. Hey, John, how you doing? Can't wait to see your ministry. I mean, he must have been, um, it must have been some kind of a sight to see without question. John grew up and he embraced this God-given purpose for his life, even though it required great sacrifice on his part from a worldly perspective. What we know from scriptures is that John obviously didn't care. I have a strong hunch that John was doing exactly what he wanted to do, being convinced that a life of service before the only true and living God was better than anything else. Why else would he have followed through on the, the, the angelic word and at some undisclosed time leave his parents' house and move out into the wilderness and eat and dress the way he did? And He must have been convinced that he was going out to live his best life now. Without question. So it seems to me that Jesus calling John the greatest man to ever live dealt with the fact that John was called from among all people to be the one and only forerunner for the Lord himself. So it seems that John's greatness was related specifically to his calling. And God knew that John would be one who would willingly obey the word of the Lord. Does that sound anything like Joseph from last week? The minute... God spoke to Joseph in the middle of the night. Joseph, get up. Take your family. It says, and Joseph got up. He didn't hesitate. He didn't take six months to contemplate and pray and ask for prayer requests amongst his families and his friends. Hey, I got an angel appeared to me in the night six months ago. Tell me, it's too late. We see in Joseph an immediacy to obey. We see in John a willingness to walk in the ways of the Lord. It says of John's parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, that they were righteous people. It seems that God has a way of knowing whom to identify and whom to use for particular points of service in ministry. And let's not let that escape the likes of you and me. We're not John. We weren't Joseph. I see, I see Dale. I see Ben, Matt, Clay. You're who you are, and God has put a calling on your life as well. So let's not miss the obvious applicational points along the way. Though we're gonna be talking specifically about John and learning some really interesting things about John. Let's not miss walking through that applicational bridge ourselves and thinking, okay, am I as sensitive to the leading of the Lord in my life as John was his? John was willing to forego everything for who? For the Lord. Lord, you've put this call on my life. I'm out. I'm I'm there. I'm doing it. As awkward of a life as that must have been, as difficult as that may have been, the strain on him, no issue for John. So let's not miss that simple applicational step ourselves. Are we ready to hear the voice of the Lord our God as we read the scriptures and be willing to trust and obey as did John? Let's start looking particularly at John here now and chapter 3, verse 1. Notice what it says. It says, now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, we see here in verse 1 that Matthew moves us from Jesus returning from Egypt and landing in Nazareth, there at the end of chapter 2 in Matthew, here to the days of John the Baptist. In those days, John the Baptist came, which we know is historically about 30 years later Jesus jumps i mean Matthew jumps us ahead about 30 years into the life and ministry of John the Baptist just from the ending of chapter 2 to the beginning of chapter 3 now i'm sure that most of you know this but i'm going to say it anyway uh, john was not a baptist in the same way that we have baptist christians today john was actually a non-denominational bible church guy kidding just a little bit, but he certainly was non-denominational, right? Any denominations yet? I don't think so. As a matter of fact, the church, the birth of the church, so he had been like a pre- non-denominational guy. See, there's the pre. We're getting some pre-stuff here, Ben, like pre- millennial, pre. He's a pre- non-denominational guy. And we know that John would have been a biblicist, right? He was just simply reading his Old Testament scriptures. So he was a pre-non-denominational biblicist. And I don't know about you, but that's pretty close to a Bible church non-denominational guy, if you ask me. I'm just saying, and gal. Can I get an amen? Come on. Yeah, he, he was not... About, so the, his name, the angel said, and you shall name him John the Baptist. No, there was no uh, stuttering after it. Just name him John. Now, John actually was um, a very common... Jewish name in the New Testament at that time. Um, derived from the Hebrew, perhaps, uh, Jonathan, which simply means Yahweh is gracious. Which, when you think of the ministry of John the Baptist, his name seems to fit him very well. That Yahweh is gracious. Yahweh is sending a John, one who demonstrates that Yahweh is gracious. Because the very thing that John's ministry was about was about the clearing the way of of awakening a a slumbering sinful people, and making straight the way of the Lord. That's a very gracious thing because in comes the King, in comes the gospel, and the preaching of the gospel, which is a gospel of grace. So, John is a his namesake was Yahweh is gracious, and indeed Yahweh has been gracious to us. Now, notice how here in the text here. See right here, notice how Matthew indicates for us that John one day shows up. It says, came. Matthew used the word came. John the Baptist came, which, for those of us reading the account some 2,000 years removed, gives us a sense that John kind of just all of a sudden, out of nowhere, showed up and started preaching. And, And I think it might be due to the fact that our English translations have translated this verb as being past tense, hence and at least in the New American, you may find, I doubt you will. But it, we have the word came, John the Baptist came, but in the Greek text, this verb here is in the present tense, which would be rendered come. But as you can imagine, if you were trying to read this verse in the present tense, now in those days, John the Baptist come, preaching in the wilderness of Judea. So it "Just It doesn't flow well, it doesn't have the same kind of just natural rending of, of, of how we as English people tend to read. It just doesn't feel right. But what it does do is it lets us know that John's preaching ministry was a present tense reality for an undisclosed period of time. That John's wilderness preaching ministry didn't just show up unexpectedly one day just as a, you know, like a couple days prior to Jesus going public with his ministry. John had an ongoing preaching ministry, which it seems gathered a large enough and enthusiastic enough of a crowd, of a following, to pose some sort of threat to Herod Antipas. We're going to see later in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. Listen to this, excuse me, 1 through 5. It says, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead, and this is why miraculous powers are at work in him. For when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. John's preaching ministry didn't just show up out of the blue one day. He had been preaching long enough to be regarded by the Jews as a legitimate prophet. And in the spirit of a prophet, John didn't mince his words with anyone as we see clearly from this passage. Herod wanted to put him to death. And as we know from the rest of the story, John was beheaded while in prison. And if you haven't heard, uh, DC Talk wrote a pretty cool song about John the Baptist check it out sometime DC talk John the Baptist I think you'll find it on YouTube something about a crazed man eating locusts in the wilderness something like that. I can't remember the words, but they did go check that out it, it seems a lack of understanding of John's ministry could wrongly lead us to believe that John was simply a short-lived warm-up act for Jesus rather than a unique and distinctive representation of the Jewish prophetic tradition John rightly should be seen as the last of the Old Testament prophets and at that the greatest of them all as God used him after 400 years of prophetic silence to preach in the wilderness and to call the nation of Israel and anybody else willing to listen to repent of their sin because the Messiah King is right on his heels. And according to the historian Josephus, John the Baptist was described as a significant prophetic figure in the early days prior to Christ's public ministry. So he didn't just came, he had already come to the wilderness and his preaching and teaching ministry had gathered a large enough following to be recognized by the Jewish people as a prophet and to have gotten under the skin of a king. It cost him his life. And notice what... Matthew says that John the Baptist was. says in those days John the Baptist came, come, came preaching. Now, why didn't we, or they, well not we, why didn't they call him John the Preacher? I mean, he's preaching his preaching was obviously a very large part of John's ministry. This word preaching here from the Greek, keruso uh, is, Simply means to announce extensively, and I think there's a a part here that gives us an indication the the extent the extensive nature of John's announcing. He was an announcer. He was thus a heralder of the coming of the Lord in the wilderness of Judea. And this, K. here gets translated as preaching. It's to proclaim, to tell. John was in the wilderness proclaiming some very important things, and he was telling extensively as many people as would listen to what he had to say, as many would come to the wilderness and hear and see this man that was dressed the way he was dressed, eating what he ate and saying what he had to say. This word is a very descriptive word for what John was doing while in the wilderness, again showing us that John clearly understood his task at hand. He was a herald, he was an an announcer, a foreteller extensively and publicly committed to the ministry of God and what God had called him to proclaim, what God had called him to teach and preach. And we're going to see that in verse 2. That was a message of repentance, of repentance from sin and to faith in God. Now, if you think about John, John was very peculiar in almost every way. From his conception and birth to his lifestyle, that seclusive lifestyle that he led to his public ministry, without question John the Baptist in obedience to God was doing exactly what he knew he was called to be doing or he wouldn't have been doing it. Now again let's not miss these obvious applicational connections. An angel of the Lord showed up in the temple and gave Zacharias, a word as to what this, this son of yours, John, what he's going to be doing. Well, as New Testament Christians, when we, when we read the Bible, we have a word from God as to what we as Christians ought to be doing. You see, if God has saved you as he did John and put the Holy Spirit within you as he did John and spoke a very specific word as to what you are to be doing as Christians, and, you know, ministry-wise, as he did John, we need to be asking ourselves if we, like John, are willing to be committed and determined to fulfilling our ministry calling on earth as was John. And our ministry calling seems to be a little bit simpler than John's, though simpler in the sense of we're not called to live hermetic type lifestyles out in, you know, the, the bush of jinx or broken arrow somewhere. We get to live in houses and we get to eat normal foods and meals that are cooked by people. And we have relationships and we come to a lovely place like this. But yet God has called us with a particular message, has he not? And we're going to see that it's the same message that he gave John. John was out in the wilderness. He was crying out re- a message of repentance. Jesus left one commission to his church. It's a message of repentance. For salvation in no other name, than the name of Jesus. Repent. We see the apostles... And the disciples, when they went out preaching, they, pre- they said the exact same thing that John says. And that's what we are called to do as well. Let's not miss the obvious connection for our own lives while talking specifically, again, about John. So how are we doing with regard to that? I mean, our call of making disciples, that's what God's called us to do as Christians. Go make disciples of all the nations. How are we doing at that? Is there any intentionality with the way we structure our, our lives, our world? Do we have, are we engaging purposefully with in evangelistic endeavors? Do we have a, an evangelism prayer list? Are we praying for perhaps family members or neighbors or coworkers or students or teachers or whoever it might be? Are we? Actively saying, "Lord, could you give me a divine appointment just to share the faith?" We can't save anybody. You know that God causes the growth, but we are called to plant and water, plant and water, and then we're also called as a part of our Christian ministry to live in community with other Christians to fulfill the law of Christ in each other's lives, for the purpose of accountability, for the purpose of, of, hey, how's your quiet time growing? Are you eating the Word? Are you growing strong spiritual muscles? How can I help you do that? How can we walk? How can we live life together? just like the Word of God would call us to do one to another. Again, John's life is a great example, as was Joseph's last week, of men who are willing to hear the Word of God and act. Let's be, let's be the same. Amen, church? Let's hear the Word of God and let's be doers of His Word, effectual doers, as James would say. Now, notice verse 2. Notice the simplicity of John's message from Matthew three two. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John's message was one of repentance, a voice of one calling in the wilderness for people to repent of their sin, to turn from their wrong ways of sin, meaning falling short of the the standards of God. Thou shalt not lie, we lie. Shouldn't steal, we steal, etc., etc. To turn from sinful ways and to turn to following God and to start living our lives according to His ways, new ways. Repentance is what a person does when they are converted to faith in Jesus Christ. It's not just simply a change of mind of who Jesus is, though that's true. It also involves a change of will, the behavior together with the mind, and sees Jesus for, tr- for who he truly is. It sees Jesus when there's a repentant heart. It sees Jesus as a new master and Lord in their lives. Notice this word repentance from our Greek lexicon here, from Lou Alnita. It's it's got it here. Is here's metanoia. There's another uh, derivative of that metanoia. But metanoia is what we have in our passage. It says to change one's way of life. Did you see that right there out of the lexicon, the Greek lexicon? What's this dealing with? It's dealing with the way of life. So many people get trapped up into thinking that metanoia is simply a change of your mind. Just change your mind. Oh, I had a change of mind. Metanoia, I change my mind. The lexicon right out the gate says to change one's way of life. It has to do with the living. Yes, it it involves the mind because the mind is the control center of our bodies. Our mind tells us what to do. Lift this hand, lift this hand. Our mind has to be changed about who we think Jesus is. But metanoia, repentance, involves the life. So much bad theology has derived from this notion, it's what we call easy believism, that metanoia simply is a change of the mind, that it doesn't impact the life at all. That's a, a blight on the Protestant church, it seems, in so many ways. That understanding of metanoia is, to a certain degree, like a gain green within the body of Christ. You see so many Christians with feeble Christian lives, because... They came to Jesus simply because they were, you know. I mean, really, who wants to go to hell? I don't know if anybody's. Um, sign me up. Now there, you know, there are some. You can go find it on your YouTube. There'll be somebody, you know. Oh yeah, I want to go to hell, and I'd rather party with my friends in hell than than sing in the angelic choir with a. I get yeah, cliches. But let me tell you, at the end of the day, nobody wants to have conscious. Torment forever and ever, nobody. And so we adopt Jesus into our family, and we're friends with Jesus. There's a version of Christianity that seems to just be spread that Jesus. You can you can have your your what we call our fire insurance. You can have your your cake, your, your icing, and you can have your cake too. In other words, no change of life. You can come to Jesus, just say a prayer. I did this when I came, walked an aisle. I repeated a prayer up front, and they baptized me a couple of weeks later, and I knew I was in. And they said that once you're in, you're always in. And I was like, that's great news. As a matter of fact, that is true. Once you're saved, you're always saved. You cannot lose your salvation. The, the only question really becomes is, did you really get saved? Did you truly repent? Which we see biblically has a reflection in the life So a person who claims to have gotten saved, but they continue just to live exactly the way they have always lived before in the same patterns, and they're not not fighting against it. It's not to say that once you get saved, you never sin. No, but you fight against sin. You fight the good fight of faith. And you're fighting to put to death the deeds of the flesh, and you realize that the the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life in the system and this culture in which we live in, we recognize that it can be difficult and hard, but what do we do? We fight the good fight of faith. And when we sin like Peter, we weep over our, our sin because we know we've grieved a relationship with the living God. And we get back up and we keep fighting and we keep living for the Lord. But if we come out of the baptismal waters and we're like, yeah, I'm in, baby, let's go. Let's eat, drink, and be married because who knows when my number gets called, you have to really start questioning, did, was there true repentance from the heart? The lexicon says, to change one's way of life as the result of a complete change of thought, yes, the mind, and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness, to repent, to change one's way, repentance. And then they give a little um, a little description here, and it says, though in English a focal component of repentance is sorrow or contrition that a person experiences because of sin, the emphasis in metanoia and other, ver- well, that here's metanoia, seems to be more specifically the total change, both in thought and behavior, with respect to how one should both think and act. The life of the mind and the life in your living. It's both. And it's critically important to understand that repentance is, is this. It's both thought and Thinking, behavior, life. We see in Acts chapter 26, Paul speaking to King Agrippa. He says, so King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient. And Notice the connection here when we get down here to repentance, metanoia. I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those in Damascus first, and also at Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea, and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent. He's preaching the same message that John the Baptist came in the wilderness preaching, that they should repent. And notice this: notice the, the the, um, the logical outcome of repenting, and it results in a turning to God, and, he, and more specifically, what? Performing deeds, the life, appropriate to repentance. So to act like repentance somehow is just a change of the mind. It doesn't impact the life at all. The Apostle Paul in this passage, I, I, and you know what, we could spend the rest of our time this morning, and I could go one passage after another passage. After There are so many passages throughout the New Testament Scripture that, that articulate this same thing with regard to repentance. It's unbelievable. But it's oh so beautiful. Because it gives us a genuine understanding of what genuine repentance looks like, a matter of the mind and the life. And we see this again in Hebrews chapter 6.1, that such an understanding of Metanoia was actually a very basic foundational truth regarding the teaching of the gospel. Notice this from Hebrews 6.1. It says, therefore, leaving the elementary Teaching about the Christ. The gospel. Let us press on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance. Very foundational basic teaching of Christ. It was elementary. Was that repentance led one from dead works. Away from their practices from dead works and of faith toward God change life and and they're saying look we need to we should already be beyond that that that's the elementary teaching about repentance is that it's a turning from sin and turning to God and changing your life let's move on to maturity why do we have to keep going back and dealing with these basic issues that should already be known that yes when you repent you're changing your mind about who Jesus Christ is and it changes your life Because there's something about that new covenant. He says, I'm going to give you a what? What do he say he's going to give you? A new heart. (laughs) So when you get converted, God gives you a new heart. And so from the heart, you're legitimately desiring to please God. No one has to pull your arm, yank your chain, twist your arm behind. Nobody has to make you want to love God and obey God. Nobody does. From a new heart, he's given you. You want to now do this. So it's a change of mind and a change of life. John MacArthur's commentary he says it does not denote just any change but always a change from wrong to the right away from sin into righteousness God calls for radical change and transformation that affects the mind the will and the emotions the whole person This is why repentance and conversion are in, in essence two sides of the same coin And this is why we see Peter use it this way in 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to what? Repentance. Repentance is interchangeable with the idea of belief or salvation in Christ. These are synonymous terms. And metanoia clearly is the idea of changing your mind about who Jesus is, which... Changes your life because by the Holy Spirit who indwells you, you get a new heart according to the new covenant. And God's patient toward you. So perhaps if there's any of you here this morning who have yet to recognize genuine repentance in your own life, I mean, perhaps maybe there's some here this morning that were like me. I was I was a I went to church almost every Sunday. I got drugged to church by folks, my parents, every Sunday, and even some on Wednesdays when I was younger. And thankfully when I got older I could kind of start skipping that. But oh I had my fire insurance. And every every summer I went to the camp. We had camps because I was been of the Baptist. I was a Baptist. Like John. My forefather, John. I too was a Baptist. And at the Baptist camps, you know what we did? Every year, we rededicated. There was a rededication of life every single year. And I was in, man, because I was smart enough to recognize it in my heart. Boy, I didn't want to do all that Jesus stuff. Because you can't make somebody want to love Jesus. You just can't. Genuine conversion is the only thing that's going to give you a heart from God that's going to make you want to love him. You you, you you can only fake it maybe a little bit, but you can't fake it forever. And so every year, man, I would go and I would rededicate because I wanted to make certain that that fire insurance ticket I had was going to hold. And i tell you, when I turned 20 years old and God opened up the spiritual eyes of my heart to see, wow, I recognized and, I, and I, felt, I felt what a new heart felt like because from my innermost beings, I had a desire to live for God and to please Him in any way and every way possible. And I walked away from everything that I was doing previously. Willingly and gladly, because I realized what a foolish lifestyle I was living. Repentance is a very powerful message, and this is what John came preaching. And just by way of, I gotta hurry, by way of um, note here, the disciples, when Jesus sent his disciples out preaching, notice this in Mark 6 he summoned the 12. He summoned them, hey guys, gather, and began sending them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits and he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them then verse 12 they went out and preached just like john the baptist that men should metanoia repent that is a preaching of the gospel a repentance message of turning from sin recognizing who god is he's holy you're not He's perfect, you're a sinner. So you repent of your sin against his holy standards and you walk away from it all. You turn and you turn towards him. You open his word and you say, Lord, how shall I live? And then he gives us all these beautiful standards and he says, just learn my ways. My yoke's not a heavy yoke, it's a light yoke, as a matter of fact. And I discovered that whenever I got a new heart, I realized that all these thou shalt nots actually weren't burdens at all. They were a blessing. That therein was the way to an abundant life. I thought it was the way to strangle my life. But no, it was actually the ways to abundant life. Conversion, repentance. It's a powerful, powerful thing. And this is exactly what we do when we go about doing our ministry. We call people to repentance, to turn from their sin, and to turn to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, notice the end of verse 2 again, back in chapter 3 with me. Look at the end of verse 2. So here was, his, here was his preaching, repentance, metanoia. But notice what it says. For, kind of a purpose statement, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The urgency for repentance is due to the fact that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's without question that Jesus is the king from heaven in accordance with all Old Testament prophecy. But what we need to understand about John's statement here is that John, as the last of the Old Testament prophets, was just like all the rest of those prophets in what he didn't know about the coming kingdom of heaven. That King Jesus first had to come as a suffering servant and die on a cross as the spotless Lamb of God. This was something they... Didn't know. This was something John didn't understand. This was something the original disciples didn't comprehend. And then following that, his death, burial, and resurrection, King Jesus was then going to build a church during an interval of time now known as the church age. And the reason why they didn't know about the coming church age, which we are currently living in right now, As we are still awaiting the kingdom of heaven to have its earthly fulfillment, which Jesus is going to bring about at his second coming, it's the simple fact that this period of time, the time that lies between Jesus' first and second coming, was to all of them a mystery. So John the Baptist is out there preaching, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But the church age was a mystery. Was a mystery to John. He, like all the other prophets, he, like the rest of the disciples, remember what the disciples said to Jesus even after his resurrection in Acts chapter 1? They were saying, Well, is now the time you're going to establish your kingdom? They were still thinking that he was going to then bring in this earthly kingdom as was prophesied from the Old Testament. They were still looking for it even after he had convinced them that he was God from heaven and that in his first advent he had to suffer and die on the cross, that he wasn't coming in his first advent to establish a kingdom. So they said, okay, cool, we're down with you on that, we got you. So after his resurrection, he appears to them and they're saying, so is now the time. They were in the same place as was John the Baptist, as was all the other Old Testament prophets. To them, the church age was indeed a mystery. John knew that he was a forerunner to the promised Messiah King. He had a simple message for the nation and anyone willing to listen of repentance because the kingdom of heavens at hand. I I believe that John had every reason to believe that Jesus was coming to establish his earthly kingdom when he came. As a matter of fact, prior to John's death while in prison, listen to what he asked Jesus in Matthew chapter 11. We're going to get there, but notice this. Now when John, while in prison, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? John, having heard of the works of Jesus, was confused by the works of Jesus. He was confused by the things that this Messiah King was supposed to be doing. He wasn't matching the expectations that John the Baptist had as a good Jewish boy who knew his scriptures. Are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? Jesus wasn't building an earthly kingdom and John could tell he had heard what he was doing instead. Jesus wasn't overthrowing governing powers in his day, establishing a Davidic throne from which he was going to rule with a rod of iron over all the nations. So again, John said, shall we look for someone else? Listen, the Magi believed baby Jesus to be the king of Daniel's prophecies and traveled nine months to worship him. King Herod believed the Magi when they told him that they had come to worship the newborn king of the Jews. And so Herod sought to kill him. John the Baptist was the prophesied forerunner of the coming king. And he said, the time of that kingdom is at hand. Even after Jesus had resurrected, they were still looking for this coming kingdom. Without question, the church age, the ingathering of God's elect from every tribe and language was a mystery to them all. Ephesians 3 shows us this. See all these verses right here? I'm looking at the clock. I hear babies crying. And I'm on page 16 of 25. I didn't get through my, I didn't I didn't draft very well through some of my pages here. So let me just end right here with this Ephesians 3 part piece. We'll pick up here next week. Sound good? This mystery was unknown to John the Baptist, unknown to all the Old Testament prophets, unknown to the disciples, a mystery. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, and if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, by the revelation there was made known to me the mystery. As I wrote before in brief, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations, check out verse 5, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles. Now I'm skipping here from verse 5 over to verse 8, so 6 and 7, are not. it's not that they're not important, you can go back and read them, but for the sake of screen space... I needed to, they, it wasn't as urgent. So verse 8, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. That's the gospel. And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. This beautiful mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, the creator of all things. And this, by the way, verse 11, was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through him in faith. Again, John's urgency in his preaching was due to the fact that he believed the kingdom of the Messiah, King Jesus, was soon to be established. It was at hand. And he was calling all of Israel, and again, anybody willing to listen, you need to repent. The king is coming. He's going to be establishing his kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's right on my heels. And just like all the Old Testament prophets before me said, he's going to be establishing a kingdom just like the nation was expecting. And that was John's message. You don't want to miss out on getting in the king's kingdom. You don't want to be against or opposed by this king. He will be ruling with a rod of iron. I think John knew his scriptures very, very well. Man, I'm just in the middle of this. I didn't even get to my punchline yet. But I, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling it. I'm feeling that Matthew's apologetic for who Christ is in these first, second, and third chapters is astounding. The way he is weaving together this... This um, historical narrative of Jesus that weaves him in as being the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophets in the right time. Now, was Matthew in the writing of his gospel, was he aware of this gap? I think he's got a lot better understanding, but he's writing in a historical present as the way things really were, hooves on the ground. Come back next week. We're going to pick up right here. And where are we? We're in Matthew chapter 3, verse 3. Hey, I got two verses today. But did you feel like you learned at least a little something? That's the goal. We're here to learn the Word of God, not feel good about ourselves, but to learn about the Word of God and to grow. Because we have a ministry like John had a ministry, and so when the church gathered scatters, let's go be the church scattered. Amen?